Scripture for today is Psalm 49, uh, which is printed in your bulletin, or you can find on page 442 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us from Psalm 49 this morning. Let us hear your voice. We are your sheep, you are the shepherd. And the sheep recognize the voice of their shepherd. We want to hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this week on Monday, my kids were uh, at a pool play date up in Exeter, New Hampshire, where Mark and Janice are visiting today. They live up there. And so we were on Monday afternoon, we were up there and I was, I was on an errand to get an oil change. And I was driving through Exeter and I saw a street sign on a business that said this, where do fish keep their money? 
I don't even, I don't remember what the business was, but, uh, so as I kept driving, I said, where do fish keep their money? And then I finally, I finally, I finally just gave up and Googled it because that's what I do. And the answer is in riverbanks. Now it makes sense. Riverbanks. And it, it got me thinking because this morning in Psalm 49, it talks about a riddle, a riddle of life that he's going to solve uh, to the music of the lyre. Verse four, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Got me thinking about riddles. And um, so I, I, I did some other research and I found that there's, there's something known as the world's hardest riddle. Anybody heard about this? The world's hardest riddle. Listen to this. 97% of Harvard graduates never get the right answer to this riddle. But 85% of kindergartners do get the right answer to this riddle. Are you intrigued? All right. Should I read it to you? I'll read it to you. Actually, I don't even have it printed. I must have, I must have made the, the executive decision not to print it. Um, so I'll, I'll, give you the, I'll give you the skinny. Can I give you the skinny to it? Maybe this, maybe this will actually keep it a little bit of a secret for you for if you ever run into the actual riddle. Here's, here's why this riddle is so hard. There is no answer to it. There's no answer to the riddle. And 97% of Harvard graduates refused to admit that there could not be an answer to a riddle. They kept pursuing thinking that there had to be some answer to a riddle. Whereas most kindergartners eventually get to a place where they're saying, oh, there is no answer. And they're correct. So it's an interesting thought about how we pursue answers in life, right? The smartest of the smart, the most childlike of the most childlike. And sometimes those things work for or against us. So as we consider the deep riddle of Psalm 49, consider how do you choose to think about the deepest questions of life? Because this is a deep question that is asked in today's psalm. Do you find yourself pressing for more and more depth or, or trying to arrive at a final definitive answer? Or do you go to the other extreme and maybe just throw your hands up in the air and say, I give up? I'm, try, I don't, I'm not going to try to find the answer anymore because it's just too complex or too challenging. So in Psalm 49, verse 4, it introduces us to a riddle that verses 5 and 6 really put into plain words for us. Verses 5 and 6 are kind of the, the heart of the riddle that the rest of the psalm tries to unpack. Verse 5, it says this. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. To summarize that, essentially, why do the wealthy wicked seem to get away with more than the poor pious or the faithful simple ones? Psalm 49 is a wisdom psalm, which I admit, as I'm preparing to go away on vacation and my mind is already a bit foggy, I was a bit disappointed that I picked this psalm this week because my mind just can't really handle much, much of a riddle this week. And so I've been praying that the Lord would just, you know, 
provide clarity amidst the fog of, of my mind and maybe the fog of your mind on a Sunday morning as well. But there are some Psalms that are more wisdom oriented, meaning, you know, most of the Psalms we've been looking at this summer as we've been going through various Psalms, most of the Psalms we've looked at are just someone's heart being poured out onto the page, cries of the heart. And those I can really relate with because they're just, they're so evident, so tangible, so real, so relatable. Wisdom Psalms are more like the Proverbs where there's a little bit more of a, you have to dive a little bit deeper to find the understanding of what's being written. They're a little bit more poetic. They can be a little bit trickier. But two times in this, in this Psalm, verse three and in verse 20, it encourages us to seek understanding. And that's what we're going to spend the next little bit of time this morning trying to do is pray that the Lord would give us understanding this morning, not only into this Psalm, but into God's ways, into the deep riddles of life. The riddle, if I could summarize it one more way, essentially is what's the purpose of life if it's unfair? What's the purpose of life when it's seemingly unfair? When it seems like so much depends on wealth or power, and it seems like so many people have no opportunity to get wealth or power because of their circumstances. What's the purpose of life if it's just naturally unfair? That seems to be the question that the psalmist is asking. And they give us the answer, and the answer is, you don't have anything to fear. Though, though verse 5 says, why should I fear? Implying that there is a fear that we all kind of naturally go to. Later in the psalm, at the end, it says we actually should have nothing to fear. Verse 16, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, it says. So we could end the sermon there if we wanted to play the role of the kindergartner, right? And just say, well, why should I be afraid? It says not to be afraid. Okay, let's move on. But let's press deeper to try to find what exactly can help us not to fear. What is the understanding that we need to find in order to not fear? What understanding will keep us faithful till the very end of our life? And what does Christianity ultimately teach us about the riddle of life? Because if we, if we kind of skip over that question, then we're kind of living into the quote that's on the front of the bulletin today which I found this week, it's by a theologian named A.W. Tozer. And he says this, he says, Christianity has often been watered down until the solution is so weak that if it were poison, it would not hurt anybody. And if it were medicine, it would not cure anybody. On the contrary, we believe as a church here and Christians believe that there is a powerful answer that does provide medicine for a weary world that the answer of the gospel provides hope for times of fear and answers to questions that are the deepest riddles of life. So let's, let's go here this morning for a few minutes and look at a couple of different um, things that this psalm encourages us, us with. So how can we have understanding to the deepest riddles of life? I think there's three things that we can just simply be encouraged by this morning that help us to understand how life goes and how life is meant to be understood so that we're not paralyzed by fears like this one, when someone is rich and it's not fair and they use that against the world. First encouragement, 
your human life is uniquely and deeply valuable. Your specific human life. I'm looking at 50 different faces in this room. Your unique life is uniquely valuable. Verses one through four, I mean, it it opens it up to everybody, right? Hear this, all people, listen up, everybody. And it even gives us a few qualifications. All inhabitants of the world, that's you, you're not an alien. Both low and high, both rich and poor, everybody hear it, listen up. And then it says, my mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. This is a psalm for everybody, not just for those that feel afflicted by the wealthy or by the powerful, not just for those who are wealthy or powerful, but for both and for all of us. This psalm is written for all people. No person is excluded from the wisdom of this psalm. All hearts are invited to understand, right? The meditation of my heart shall seek understanding. Ultimately, that is what life focuses on the most, is the heart of individuals. Understanding comes from the heart, primarily. And that's what the world's hardest riddle seemed to miss, is focusing mostly on the mind and the intellect. But you and I know most of the life is centered around the heart. What you alone can feel and what God alone can see. If you skip past the riddle, verses 5 and 6, and go down to verses 7, 8, and 9, it shows us how we are uniquely valuable in each individually. It tells us in verse 7, Truly no man can ransom another person or give to God the price of his life. Meaning, each one of us are free individuals. You are free in your heart. You're a free individual person, meaning that no one can buy you. You are unbuyable. And now let me pause there for a moment and picture me in a different time in history or in a different location in the current day and how scandalous of a thought that could be, that no person is buyable by another person. Our country has lived through periods of slavery where people were bought with a price. There are still places in the world where people are purchased. We prayed in the prayer today about human trafficking, where people are sold into sex slavery for money. God's word tells us in verse 7, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of their life. And specifically what he's talking about here is that you cannot purchase salvation for someone either. Meaning that if you have money, that cannot buy you anything spiritual, spiritually significant. You can actually go to places in the world and buy a person and enslave someone, but you cannot buy them salvation. You ultimately are a free person in the sight of God. You are free in the sense that you're not buyable, but you're also free in the sense that you're not savable by another person. So again, imagine someone in slavery today there's heroic stories of people going and saving other people, people and bringing them out of slavery. So there's been wars fought over that. There's been you know, dramatic stories of, of people going into hard places and bringing people out, right? So picture even modern day Ukraine and Russia. There's probably stories like that that we'll read about one day. 
But what this is saying is you cannot buy someone's heart. You cannot buy someone's ultimate soul or salvation. Verse 8 says, tells us the reason why. And the reason why is because the ransom of their life is costly and you can, it can never suffice. Meaning that you are so valuable in the sight of God. You have such deep worth just being a human because you're made in the image of God. You are so valuable that nothing is, more, nothing is, is costly enough to buy you. There is no price tag that can be on you. You cost too much for any human to do anything to you. No trade or amount of money is enough to ransom you. Now you may say this is, this is kind of an interesting turn in the, in the psalm. But this is building towards us understanding why there's nothing to fear. It's because you are that valuable. No person can buy you. Yet the gospel tells us that we have been bought. We have been purchased. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. No man can buy you. No person can buy you. No person can buy your soul. But God has. God has purchased you for the greatest price possible. So when it says that you're too costly to buy, that, that means that there's nothing you and I could do as equals to purchase one another. But there is someone who could lay down an ultimate cost, an ultimate price to buy us. And that, of course, is the story of Jesus on the cross. God gave his life for the many so that he could buy back or redeem. That's what the word redeem means, buy back. God bought you back from a life of slavery to sin and a destiny to death. He bought you with himself so that you could be free in soul forever. And because of that, there's nothing to fear about wealth or riches or power or how you're treated today. Even if you were in slavery today, you have been bought with the ultimate price by God. Jesus Christ has set you free. And that's the good news of the gospel. So hear that as we begin point, uh, the, this, the beginning part of this sermon. That's the first point. Point two, which is the middle point, because I got three. Point two, so not only are you uniquely valuable, you're so valuable that no one can purchase you but God alone. Point number two, and I mentioned this to someone as we were walking in the door today, because this one spoke to me this week. Number two, your circumstances, whatever you're going through in life, your circumstances are uniquely a gift. Your particular unique circumstances in life are a gift from God. Now, you may say, Stephen, you got some explaining to do, because my circumstances are not desirable and they feel like a curse right now they don't feel like a gift and they feel like this is this is something that could not be true and i want to point you to a couple of places in this passage first verses 10 to 13 um, we bring up here the the reality of death if you read if you read through the psalm again just on your own someday you'll notice that death is a primary theme in the psalm we're going to get to that but primarily what I want to point out in verses 10 to 13 is this reality of, of verse 12 where it says, man in his pomp will not remain. Can we just pause for a moment and appreciate the use of the word pomp? 
in the psalm. I just appreciate that. Uh, it, comes, it comes as a nice surprise here. It's not a word that we use a lot, but we save it for special circumstances, right? There's even a, a musical arrangement called Pomp and Circumstances, which we save that particular musical arrangements, these marches, we save them for special occasions like military marches or graduation ceremonies, pomp and circumstances. It's a series of like grand you know, orchestral uh, arrangements. Merriam-Webster Dictionary calls pomp and circumstances. It gives it a definition. It calls it, quote, impressive formal activities or ceremonies. And what this passage teaches us is that if you're living your life in a pomp and circumstances type of way, meaning you're living your life for impressive circumstances or impressive activities, you're probably going to feel great for a lot of your life. But ultimately, that has a, an end date. Just this week, someone in Illinois bought a ticket for a lottery that is gonna cash them out somewhere in the $1 billion range. Lottery ticket, you guys hear this? $1 billion. And so I would encourage us to take a moment right now to pray for that person because their life is never gonna be the same. Lord, be with that person, whoever that is in Illinois. Help them to use that for kingdom purposes and may their life be a blessing even as it's changed so much. Lord, guard them from the allures that will come from that. Use it for amazing kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. And I pray that prayer genuinely because you've read stories about how the lottery has changed people's life for the worse. Legitimately, that person has a, a challenging life ahead of them. Even though it feels like, I mean, a billion dollars, how could that be a bad thing? But money and power and pomp all bring with them natural negatives in life. Let's focus first on the positives though. Let's say you live a life where you have natural advantages, like where you have money, you have power, you have privilege, and you're living in a place where you have no real struggles when it comes to those things. Let's focus on the positives because there are some. And this, this passage gives us some of the positives kind of in a sneaky way. But if you look at verse 10, you know, it says, uh, it, it tells us that they leave their wealth to others. But what that implies is that they have wealth. And when you have wealth, that means you can buy things. That's a positive. Verse 11, it says, you know, their ultimate homes are their graves. Um, but if you have a lot of wealth, it's implied that you can have a stable home, maybe even a large home, which would be pretty comfortable. Uh, the second part of verse 11, it says, uh, their dwelling places for all generations will be the grave, though they once called lands by their own names. Meaning, if you have, a, if you have an, an exorbitant amount of wealth, you can actually have things named after you. Has anybody ever had anything named after them in this room? I have not, and I probably never will because my last name is White, and it probably would not send the right cultural message if they put that on any building today. But if you walk around the city of Salem or any big city, you'll see names on buildings or on you know, parks or whatever. And a lot of those are significant people that had power or wealth. So they could literally put their names on land or on landmarks. That's a, that's a positive in some sense. 
Verse number 12, it talks about how man and his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. So the negative is, again, we're going to get to that, the perishing part. But the positive is, if you got money and wealth and power, you're kind of like, you're literally like a beast in the jungle. You're like the lion. You're running the show. You're at the top of the food chain. And that seems like a positive thing. Verse 13, it says, Many people approve of them and they, they approve of their boasts. So you're pretty well liked. At least you feel like it because you have this power. And if you go down to verse 18, um, it says, For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. So you kind of feel like you're blessed. And in verse 18, the second part, And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, you're, you're praiseworthy in people. All these are positive things in the world's eyes. If you put all those things on a list, you'll say, that's looks like a pretty fun life. But there's one negative to living a life of pomp and circumstance, and it's a giant negative. And what is the negative? It all goes away when you die. Death is the destiny that is coming for each person. Verse 12, man in his pomp will not remain. This is the key of the whole psalm. It's such a key that it's repeated again at the end in verse 20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Even the greatest lion in the jungle dies and is replaced. Has anybody seen the Lion King? Jesus gives us all these warnings in the New Testament about the acquiring of wealth. He says, don't don't build up bigger barns for your stuff because moths and dust and rust will destroy it anyway. There's all these warnings about wealth by Jesus in the New Testament because he knows that life is more than just money. So the takeaway in life, to come back to the big point that I was making, is whatever your circumstances are, are a gift to be used for others. So if you are poor in this room, that is a unique gift that God has given you that you can live into with a life of faithfulness. Because your soul is what matters and how you live in relationship to other people is what Jesus focuses on. If you are rich in this room, you do not have to have the same destiny as how the rich are defined in this passage. Because God looks at the heart. You can use your money, just like we pray that that Illinois person did earlier. You can use your money for kingdom purposes and put your soul in front of your paycheck and your wallet. The Apostle Paul just has a number of beautiful passages. I wish I could read them all. Um, I'll summarize a couple of them. 2 Corinthians 12, he says, when Jesus comes to him, he says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Not my power is made perfect in wealth or power. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Bible, especially the New Testament, and I would even say especially the book of 2 Corinthians, if you're feeling weak in any way, financially or in your soul or in persecution or life, whatever, if you're feeling weak, read the book of 2 Corinthians 
because the New Testament gives a very high view of weakness, saying that a weak life is actually a strong life because you lean all the more heavily on the God who is sufficient. Philippians 4 is another great place. 1 Timothy 6 is another good place. John the Baptist summarizes it really well. John 3.30, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. That's where a life of contentment comes, no matter your circumstances. I want to be like those people that can have that kind of contentment. We'll finish up with this point. Point number three. So we've talked about your value, your circumstances. It finishes by, we got to talk a little bit more about death. (laughs) You may say that's not a great thing to talk about. Let's talk about how death can be an okay thing if your soul is secure. Verse 14, it says, like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, which is talking about the depths or hell. Death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. That is, if, you're, if you haven't cared for your soul, if you've just cared about your, your circumstances, that's your destiny. But verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, from the power of death, he will receive me. Verse 19, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see the light. That's, that's the person who doesn't care about his soul in terms of spiritual things. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So as we think about death, um, you know, the overarching point here at the end is, you know, your soul is secure in the person of Jesus. By trusting in him, your soul is secure for eternity. And the point to make is, is that death is coming for all of us. We cannot escape it. Jesus holds our soul secure so that we don't even have to fear death. Remember, we're seeking understanding about how not to be afraid. That's the assurance. Christ is the assurance. That being said, there are two immensely rich and powerful people in the world today who are having a public conversation about the reality of death. Now I want to introduce you to it. One rich guy, his name is Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. I think he's still technically the richest person in the world. And he has so much money that he is now investing millions of his own resources into labs in the United Kingdom to investigate how we can prevent ourselves from aging and maybe live forever. He wants to reverse aging to where you and I could live forever. He wants to prevent death from ever happening. Now think of the irony of a rich person saying it'd be great to live forever because he's trying to avoid the fate of Psalm 49. All the warnings, he probably feels that in his soul and he's saying, I want to stop that. Jeff Bezos, there's an answer to stopping aging. There is already a solution to death and it's the cross of Jesus that's already been accomplished. Step in freedom into the plan that God has already made for the world and receive fullness of life without investing millions of dollars into labs. Live a life of fullness by trusting in Christ. The second rich man 
is kind of publicly shaming Jeff Bezos. And this man's name is Elon Musk. Elon Musk, there's a, an article I found. This is the, the title of the article. Elon Musk says that immortality technology would be very dangerous. And among the many reasons why, he says this, quote, it is important for us to die because most of the time people don't change their mind. They just die. And his point is, we don't learn anything in life until people die and then we help reverse what they decided to do. He said death is actually very central to how life works. Again, he's a very rich man and he has an interesting take on the reality of death. But regardless of either one of those two guys, the phrase death is a shepherd, death is their shepherd, verse 14, is a reality for so many in our world today. Just last week, we preached the sermon, we listened to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And yet for many in the world today, the Lord is not their shepherd, death is their shepherd. Death is walking them to their grave with no hope, seeking a life on their own, seeking more and more meaning through money and power. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me, verse 15. Immediately after verse 15, we have this, this unique word, Selah. And it just means, think about that. Pause on that for a moment. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Think about that. There is no reason to fear the ultimate riddle of life because Jesus has made a way for today and for tomorrow. Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows where the green pastures are. He loves us. He guides us. He cares for us. We know his voice and he knows ours. He fights off the invaders and the enemies coming our way. He lays down his life for the sheep and he takes it back up again. As we finish, I was thinking about the, the Fiddler on the Roof song, If I Were a Rich Man. I was in that play as a high schooler. And so I, the song just goes in my mind when I, when I think about it. It just kind of keeps, it sticks with me. It'll probably be with me all of vacation now, If I Were a Rich Man. Um, but it's, it's Tevya, this Jewish man, wishing that he were rich, wishing that he didn't have to work as much because if he did, he could build big, tall houses. His wife wouldn't have to work as much. His wife would, would look better, he says. She would have an impressive double chin is one of the things she says. he says. He said, even if I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to go sit in the synagogue and pray more. If I were a rich man, if I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. And he finishes with this, Lord, who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed that I should be what I am, would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? And by the end of, of the play, Tevia is realizing that his circumstances are a gift from God. That his soul finds delight not in wealth, but in family. And I would say even more deeply for us, our soul finds ultimate rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Charles Wesley, this will be my final quote. 
Charles Wesley, on his deathbed at age 81, didn't have the strength to actually pick up the pen and write it himself, so he had to say it to someone who could write it down for him. It's his final hymn that he wrote. He says, In age and feebleness extreme, who shall a helpless worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch one smile from thee and drop into eternity. Let me finish with prayer. Heavenly Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, We want to find our ultimate hope and rest in you. And by trusting in you, because we can't control so much of our circumstances. And when we try to, and when we allow the world to dictate our, our life, we just fill up with fear. And the world turns into a big riddle, a big jigsaw puzzle that seems unsolvable. So help us to gaze on the cross afresh today and see the empty tomb where Jesus raised on the third day and be reminded that if we have little, we still have everything because Jesus has given us fullness of life and we will live forever in your presence in a glorious eternity. That is our ultimate hope. So Lord, give us faith in the here and now. Help our church to be a family to one another who are in different circumstances so that when we come to this place in the name of Jesus, we support one another, we bear one another's burdens, and we care with the love of Christ. Lord, grant us this prayer. Give us this heart. In Jesus' name, amen.